Well, if you would, please take out your Bibles and uh, turn in them in the New Testament to the book of 1 Thessalonians and chapter number 4. If you don't have a Bible, there's one underneath the chair in front of you, um, and you can turn in there to page 160, and it will get you to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, I want to begin this morning by asking a question, and the question is this. Is it all right for a devoted follower of Jesus to be ambitious? Is it right and good for a follower of Jesus to display ambition in their life? Now, you might say, well, what do you mean by ambition? Well, if you're going to just look it up in the dictionary, it would define ambition this way, a strong desire to achieve something. Is it all right for a, a devoted follower of Jesus to have a strong desire to achieve something or to have a strong drive for some type of distinction? Is that a good thing for a follower of Jesus? And you know, the world all around us displays ambition. Ambition surrounds us in the world. It's very heavily focused on things like money. There's ambition towards that or popularity or prestige. So the question is, is divine ambition something we are to pursue? Is spiritual ambition something we are to aspire to? And I'll just give you the answer so you don't feel nervous about it at all. The answer is yes. We are to be ambitious. We are to have ambition. It's interesting that in the New Testament, three times you have that verbal phrase that is mentioned about having ambition. And I want to just look at them very quickly as we start this morning. The first one is found in 2 Corinthians 5, 9. You don't need to turn there, but it says there, Paul speaking, we have as our ambition, I think the NIV says goal, it's this verb that means to have ambition. We have as our ambition to be pleasing to Him. And I think that, that tells us what the primary focal point of our life ought to be. The primary ambition is to be pleasing to God. Second place that phrase occurs in the New Testament is Romans 15, 20, where Paul talks about how he aspired, as it says in the New American Standard, I think the NIV says ambition, my ambition is to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named, which gives us the long-range goal of a follower of Jesus, and that would be reaching the unreached. But the third time this idea of having ambition surfaces in the New Testament is in 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4, verses 11 and 12. And as we're going to see today, I think he's telling us here that the ambition we are to have, our everyday aim, is that we are to live responsibly. Notice what it says in verses 11 and 12, and I'll just read it. You can follow along in your Bible. He writes, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. We are to be ambitious. We are to have ambition. And part of the divine ambition and the spiritual ambition that we are to aspire to is to live responsibly. You know, one of the things I really like about the Bible is how practical it is, how sensible it is, how sound it is, how balanced it is, how beneficial it is. And I don't know about you, but that fascinates me, that motivates me that the Bible is like that. 
practical and sensible and sound and balanced and beneficial. Now, the passage that God has before us today is not really one of those passages that you might choose out of a whole group of verses to teach on. It's not necessarily a passage that jolts you and zings you, but it is a passage that is real-world practical. And I don't care what your age may be, whether you are younger or older, if we follow the counsel of these verses, the fruit in your life will make a big difference. Now, just to put everything in context, we've been studying 1 Thessalonians, and in chapter number 4, in the first verse, he says, I am writing to you about how we ought to walk, how we ought to live out our life and please God. And we've been looking at what he has to say about that, and the first part of pleasing God is practicing sexual purity, which we looked at a few weeks ago. The second part, which we looked at last week in pleasing God and living out our life, is that we are excelling in love. And then the third part that he wants to delineate today is when we want to live out our life and please God, we need to be living responsibly. Now let me give you the plan we're going to have of the morning as we look at living responsibly. We're going to see three elements that he surfaces here about living responsibly. We're going to see those three elements in verse 11. And then he's going to share two benefits that come our way in verse 12 by living responsibly. So we're going to look at three elements of what it means to live responsibly, and then we'll look at two benefits. So as we begin to look at these three elements, let's look at verse 11. And the first element is built around the little phrase there when he says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. What an interesting phrase that is. And if I were going to just summarize what I think the meaning behind it is, this is the first element in living responsibly, that we are to lead a quiet life, not a turbulent life one. And if you look at the language that's used here, it, it's the language of tranquility. It's the opposite of having a life that is turbulent and frantic. Keep your finger here and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Look over at 1 Timothy chapter 2. And we have a, some similar phraseology here. He's talking about how we are to pray, and he says we are to, in 1 Timothy 2, 2, pray for kings and all who are in authority so that we, as believers and followers of Jesus, may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And you know, you just, if you close your eyes for a moment and you try to picture what is a quiet life like, you almost just get the sense that it, it's speaking about a lack of restlessness in our life. And it's speaking of a, a, a calmness that should mark our relationships. So if we are going to live responsibly, we need to lead a quiet life and not a turbulent one. Well, again, I'm very practical in my thinking. How do you do that? How do you lead a quiet life and not a turbulent one? And I want to just share with you a couple of keys to that, I believe. The first key to living a quiet life is embracing contentment. Embracing contentment. 
I don't know if you ever do this from time to time, but sometimes it's good to fill in the blanks. Have you ever noticed that? What, what would be your thinking if you went this way? If I had, whoop, you know, whatever goes in that blank, if I had, then I would be content. If I had, if I could do, you know, whatever goes in that blank, then I would be content. Just think about that for a moment. How would you fill in that blank? If I had whatever it is, then I would be content. Or if I could do whatever it is, then I would be content. You know what's interesting about contentment? Contentment has nothing to do with what we have or what we do. But sometimes we don't realize that. Because we get stuck with this. If I had whatever it may be, then I would be content. Or if I could do whatever it may be, then I could. It has nothing to do with those things. Contentment has nothing to do with what we have and nothing to do with what we do. Keep your finger here. Go back to the left just a little bit to the book of Philippians, chapter number 4. When we're looking at this idea of embracing contentment, Philippians 4. And, and Paul has an interesting testimony that he gives to us here. He says in verse 11, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Now that's a good place just to stop for a moment and say, would that be a description of my life? <laughs> I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. In other words, he said, I've lived the life where I didn't have very much. And not only that, but he says, I also know how to live in prosperity. I've been in, in eras when I've had a lot and done a lot. And he, here's what he says. In, in, in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And then right away we're going, give me the secret. I, I want to hear it. Well, then it's the secret's really in the next verse. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Here's what he says contentment really is. Contentment is when I see where I am as being where God placed me and that his grace is sufficient for that place. Do you hear that? He's saying it's when I rest in, in wherever I may be right now and whatever I have and, uh, and I may be able to do or not do, I, I see that where I am is where God placed me and I realize that His grace is sufficient for me. You know, sometimes our, our problem is the way that we think and what goes on in our mind. And, and some of the signs that we are, are suffering from discontent is what we think about. Again, if we're thinking if... If, whatever it may be, then I can be content. That's a good sign that we're suffering from discontent. If I could just find the right person, if I could just get a better boss, if I could just have a bigger job, if I could just take a longer vacation, if I could have newer stuff and better stuff, then, you know, I would be happy and then I would be content. It's just giveaway thinking when we're thinking that way. Or sometimes 
our thinking goes like this. Just as soon as, and then we have to fill in the blank, then. Just as soon as, then. You know, just as soon as this project's done, you see, I'm really, really, really busy. Just as soon as this project's done, then I'll have some time to serve God. Or just as soon as I can get to th this particular level of pay, then I can spend more time with my kids. It's really thinking that is indicative of the fact that we're tangled up in discontent in our mind. Contentment, men and women, has nothing to do with what we do or what we have. You know, uh, Janet and I have come to the point in our life um, where we have a lot of stuff now. And um, I remember when, when my parents were there, and it came to birthday time for my mom or my dad, and it was like, well, what are we going to get them for their birthday? It's like, it, somewhat even at Christmas time. What are we going to get them at Christmas time? And, and, and we're sort of in that situation now. Like, well, like, what do we really need? You know, we have so much. We were just talking about it the other day, and we were... We were thinking back, you know, are we really like more internally connected in terms of, of what we have and more internally uh, contented than we used to be? And really we were thinking, you know what, when we had less stuff, when it was just a simpler life, we, were, we actually had more tranquility then than we do now. We need to remember contentment is when I rest in where I am with the idea that God placed me there and that His grace is sufficient for us. You know, on a daily basis, I think we have to answer another question, and that is, which tent do we plan to live in while we are here? Discontent or content? Really, we have a choice to make about that. And I'll tell you this, living in discontent is not a very fun place to be. Living in content is far better. Resting in where I am, seeing that's where God placed me, and seeing that His grace is sufficient. So if we're going to please God, part of what we need to do is be living responsibly. And that involves leading a quiet life, not a turbulent one. And the first key we talked about, I think, to leading a quiet life is embracing contentment. There's a second key, and that is choosing to be a peacemaker. Choosing to be a peacemaker. You remember what Jesus said? He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. In other words... Who looks more like me? Family resemblance. <laughs> the peacemakers. Keep your finger again and go back to the left to the book of Romans chapter number 12. And we have an emphasis in the New Testament on being a peacemaker. And it's part of leading a quiet life and not a turbulent one. Romans chapter 12 and verse 18. It says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Now, sometimes you can't get there. Uh, people won't cooperate with you. 
But the idea here, what he's trying to emphasize is as much as is physically, humanly, spiritually, emotionally possible, be a peacemaker. Be at peace with all men. It's part of what we're called to, to be a peacemaker. Now, I want you to go back the opposite direction for a moment in your, in your Bible and go to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. And uh, we want to look at verse 8. By the way, this whole chapter is in the context of marriage in the family, which is an interesting thing to think about. And verse 8, he says, I want to sum everything up. <laughs> All of you be harmonious and sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult. Someone slams you, you slam them back. Don't do that. But giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and to see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek what? What does it say? Seek peace and pursue it. We are to be peacemakers. And by violating the principle of being a peacemaker and not a troublemaker, do you know that lives tragically end every day? I've told this story before, but you might remember here in Norman, down there in Highway 9, as it's heading eastward, it goes from three lanes to one lane. And that creates a little bit of tension. And people have to ask the question right then and there, am I going to be a peacemaker or a troublemaker? And you might remember the story that you had these two guys vying for permission and they ticked one another off, probably gave some hand signals back and forth to one another. And so the guy who got in the front pulls over, parks his car, there's a second car behind it. Guy in the front car comes out, walks back to the guy in the back car, guy rolls his window down, guy reaches in, punches the guy right in the face. He lays down in his seat and karate kicks the guy who was outside the car, knocks him down on the ground. The guy who's knocked down on the ground gets up, pulls the pistol out of his pocket, walks over, bam, 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 gets back in his car and drives off. You see, by violating that principle of choosing to be a peacemaker and a troublemaker, lives tragically end every day. And by violating that principle, Lives are marked by trouble and turbulence every day. And so the question I ask myself is which term fits me more accurately? Troublemaker or peacemaker? How about you? Think about your marriage. Which term fits you more closely? troublemaker or peacemaker. Think about your family unit, which term fits you more closely as you interact with siblings maybe. Think about your friends. Think about at work. You see, if we're going to please God, He's calling us to live responsibly. And the first element in living responsibly is that we are to lead a quiet life, not a turbulent one. Very practical stuff, men and women. Very practical. But there's a second element back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 
regarding living responsibly, and I want you to go back there, it's built around the little phrase that you'll see in verse 11 where it says there, attend to your own business. I think the NIV says, mind your own business. How many people had a mother when you were growing up who told that to you? Let me just see some hands. Yeah. Mind your own business. And we thought, mom, come on, give me a break. You didn't know how biblical she was, did you? Unbelievable insight from our moms about minding our own business. If I were going to rephrase what I think this is referring to, it means that we are to take care of our own business and that we don't meddle. You know, literally in the original it says this, what you need to do is you need to attend to your own things. Sounds a little bit like mom, doesn't it? Attend to your own things. Be responsible for yourself is the idea. You see, God has not called us to try to fix everyone else. He just hasn't done that. And you know, we have a tendency, a human tendency to do that. And the disciples had that human tendency. Remember when Jesus said to them, Hey guys, get the telephone pole out of your own eye. You know, they're busy minding the business of everybody else. And I just see this little speck of something in their life. You know, and, and he says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Mind your own business. Take care of your own business. You know, that's, that's it. I, I have such a tendency... You know, part of my flesh is wired in a way that I tend to see things that are out of place. And many of you have that similar kind of a personality type. It's just easy for you, just sort of automatically you notice the things that are out of whack. And, and if I'm not careful, what happens is, is that I have this tendency to notice those things and sort of analyze those things and then to draw conclusions. If I just let my flesh go, that's what happens. And I could spend a lot of time figuring out what's wrong with you and what you ought to do about it. If I just let my flesh go, that's the way I, I, would, I would tend to think and what I would really struggle with. And I think all of us, if you have been around any group of people for a while, even been around people in the church, you, you will know people who have appointed themselves God's policeman, God's watchdog in the lives of others. And boy, they will watch you, and they will dog you, and they will police you. But what he's saying is, whoa, huh. that's not living responsibly to do that. You know, one of the little indicators that maybe we've drifted into being God's policeman and God's watchdog is, now if you're married, think about this for a minute. If you spend most of your energy and time thinking about how your spouse needs to change, Nobody here has ever had any thoughts like that, but theoretically speaking, you know. But if you spend most of your energy thinking about how your spouse needs to change, it probably is a good indicator that you're not really minding your own business. Because there's a lot of change you need to make probably too. You know, when we go to family life marriage conferences, it's one of the things we try to set forth the first night. You have couples who come to a weekend, and we know what the tendency is. You come to a marriage conference, they're going to talk about biblical principles of marriage and principles that will change your relationship. And we know the natural tendencies, everyone's thinking, I hope she's listening. I hope she's really paying attention. I hope she's really tuned. You know, and she's thinking, I hope he just, I hope someone finally gets through to him. 
And what we have to say to them on Friday night is time out. Whoa, 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 whoa. Don't do that this weekend. We want you to think about you. We want you to be prepared to learn about what you need to address in your own life. And that's exactly, I think, what Paul is getting at here. Another little indicator that maybe you've drifted into being God's policeman and maybe God's watchdog is when you hear the Bible taught and you listen to it and you're thinking about somebody else. Man, I just wish Bob was here because Bob needs to hear this. I mean, if Bob could do something with this truth. I mean, Bob, 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 Bob. What if God wanted to teach us something, you know? See what I'm talking about? We have this tendency to be like that. We need to think about how God wants us to make adjustments. It's just, it's interesting to me how easy this is to do. To just get focused on what others are not doing right. Or to think, you know, there's one sacred right way that you do it. And boy, oh boy, my way is always going to be, of course, the right way. And you see that even going on in the church. I, I've watched it over the years. I've been around here for a while. I, I've watched people, they look at the way other people are raising their children. And, oh, man, when are they going to get with it? And they should know better because I know best. Or uh, we've seen it over the years with um, choices that families have to make about schooling. Are we going to homeschool our kids, send them to Christian school? Uh, are we going to send them to public school? And then when everybody doesn't do it our way, then they're all wrong. You know, we are called to have convictions about these things, but we're not called to export them to one another. We need to live responsibly, which means we take care of our own business and we don't meddle. Now, I do want to say this. There is an exception to this idea of taking care of your own things and your own business, and I think that exception is very, very eloquently put forth in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 and following, because it says that if your brother sins, if your brother is in danger of being destroyed by unchecked sin in his or her life, then there's a little process that we are to go through. You're first to go to him privately, and if that doesn't work, you take two or three more, and then eventually you you tell it to the church. There is an exception to this. It doesn't mean don't, don't always look the other way. Even if you know your brother or sister is going down in flames in sin, you just keep your own business. No, there are exceptions. But the basic rule is take care of your own business and don't meddle. So God wants us to be ambitious. And he wants us to make it our ambition to live responsibly. The first element in that is that we are to lead a quiet life, not a turbulent one. The second element is that we're to take care of our own business. We're not to meddle. There's a third element that we see here in verse 11, and that's built around the phrase, work with your hands. Now, I want to clarify a couple of things. This is not a call to only blue-collar work. Some people have interpreted it that way. This is really a call to responsibility, to not be a freeloader when he says work with your hands. I want you to turn over to Second Thessalonians for a moment, the third chapter, and we can see that the warning that he gives to them here in the first letter really wasn't heeded, so he has to write a second letter. And, and I want you to notice the thrust of what he's saying in Second Thessalonians 
Thessalonians 3.10. He says, For when we were with you, we used to give you this order. You can see here what the thrust is. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life. What's the problem? Doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we commanded and exhort you in the Lord Jesus to work in quiet fashion and to eat their own bread. When he talks about working with our own hands, it's a call to responsibility, not to be a freeloader. And it's also important for us to understand it's not necessarily a call to a certain number of hours that we are to work. You don't see any numbers here, do you? It's, it's a call, though, that relates to the effort that is to be expended within the hours that we work. Now, if I were going to just reword it, I would word it this way. Be a hard worker, not a moocher. That's what it means to live responsibly, to be a hard worker, not a moocher. It's the opposite of a lazy lifestyle. It's the opposite of sponging off of other people. It's the opposite of presuming on others' generosity. It's responsible earning of our keep. You know, it's God's will that we work hard. Just look at a couple of passages on that. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. Familiar verse to many of us. Whatever you do, do your work heartily from the soul as for the Lord rather than for men. The will of God, men and women and young people, is that we work hard. And then you have the passage in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, this comes through working hard, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. In other words, what he's saying is even pagans get it. <laughs> even pagans get it that we are to work hard. It's God's will that we work hard. So if we're going to please God, it means that we work that we're self-supporting. I don't know if you've ever gone to the national parks. Yeah, if you go to the national parks where there's a lot of wildlife there, they will tell you, like, do not feed the animals. Or be very, very careful with your food. Protect your food. Keep it locked inside of your vehicle. Why is that? Because what happens is if we're not doing that or we're feeding the animals or we, we leave food that is... Um, accessible to the animals, they become accustomed to handouts. And what happens is they lose their ability to fend for themselves. It's interesting what happens with bears. When, when, when bears are getting into campers' food on a regular basis, after a while they begin to think they have a right to that. And then they get just a little grouchy and a little aggressive when they don't get it. And you know what's interesting to me is that I think that a similar thing happens on the human plane. You know, where, where people are just uh, get accustomed to handouts and, and we lose our ability to fend for ourselves and we begin to think it's our right to get that and then when we don't get it, we get a little grumpy about it. It was interesting when we had the, the influx of people from Katrina. I saw that in some of them. Not, not in all of them, but I saw that in some of them. 
It was just interesting to watch in some of them. I have a right to people handing me stuff, and if I'm not getting it, I'm getting downright grouchy about it. But what did Paul say? If someone won't work, don't let them eat either. Because if you don't let them eat, it'll motivate them to work. Now, this doesn't mean, I want to be very clear here, this doesn't mean that it would be wrong to help someone in a financial emergency. It doesn't mean that. We've all been there. We could all tell stories of being in a financial emergency. But it's just not to be a habit that we're helping people. If we're going to please God, we need to work, and we need to work hard. He said there, you are to work as to the Lord, like God himself was our employer. And we are not pleasing God or our employer if we're habitually late to work. We're not pleasing God or our employer if we just sort of coast through the day, sort of hiding there, not really getting something done until someone's watching us. We're not pleasing God or our employer if we have an opportunity to spend a whole lot of extra time on the Internet, you know, where we're doing some personal stuff there, really stealing time from him. I don't know about you, but these verses are about as practical as verses get in the New Testament. Incredibly practical. Pleasing God means that we are living responsibly. And we said there are three elements involved, which we've looked at, but I want you to see the two benefits. The two benefits that he discusses. They're in verse 12. Notice the words, so that. If you mark your Bible, you could just underline those two words. So that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Here's the first benefit is that your behavior will be honorable to outsiders. Your behavior will be honorable to them. The world is watching us. They never take their eyes off of us. And what he's really saying is, is that when we do that, then we, when we live this way, live responsibly, we have credibility. It will benefit the gospel. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8.21, he says, I have regard for what is honorable not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. He says, I'm concerned about both of those things, what's honorable in the sight of God and honorable in the sight of men. When we live responsibly, our behavior will be honorable to outsiders. And then the second benefit is that your personal needs will be met. When you live responsibly, your personal needs will be met. In other words, it will benefit you in your life. Now, again, I, I cannot think, even though these may not just completely, you know, zing us when we first look at them, there's no more practical verses than these in all the Bible. Very good stuff. Now, let's talk about some life response as we get ready to close. And, and I, I want to build our life response today around two questions for reflection. Here we go. Question number one. What tent are you living in? What tent are you living in? Content or discontent? Ben Franklin put it this way. This is a fascinating little quote. He says, Content makes poor men rich, 
and disconnect content makes rich men poor. If you think about that, that's very, very true. Content makes a poor man rich. And discontent makes a rich man poor. Remember, when we talk about contentment, it means that we believe that where we are is exactly where God has placed us right now and that His grace is sufficient for us right there. That's what contentment is. That where we are is where God placed us and His grace is sufficient for us. Second question for reflection is this one. Good one for us to reflect on and that is, how is your working? How is your working? Do you give your boss, whatever your job may be, it may be a part-time job, it may be a full-time job, but do you give your boss a hard day's work? Or are you more of a coaster? How's your working? Is your aim to be self-supporting or is your aim to really sponge off other people's generosity? Remember, there's a double reason, a double benefit that comes to us. We need to remember the world is watching. And when we talk about being ambitious, remember the primary focal point of our life is to please and honor Jesus Christ. And you know, we have been singing worship songs today about what He's done for us. He rescued us. He adopted us. Our primary focal point ought to be, how do I please Him every day as I live out my life? Let's pray together. Father, we, we just thank you again for these verses. Maybe it wouldn't be our favorite verses or the first verses we would turn to, but they're very, very practical verses. And may we realize that you are a God of wisdom. And when you give us counsel, it's for good reasons. And there's great benefit that comes from living responsibly. Not only does it give us a position of credibility in the world, but it brings us personal benefit in the long run in our life. Thank you. Thank you for counseling us today through your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.